All right. I do believe we are live. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Break the Rules live stream, the stream that brings everybody together from all the different circles, online and off. I am your humble host, Lev Polyakov, and it is a great pleasure to be here with, once again, the wonderful Angel Eduardo, uh, advisor affair, artist, amazing human being, musician, uh, lovely uh, books behind him as well, as always, and... For the first time, we have the great and powerful Curtis Yarvin, the artist uh, formerly known as a Mencius Moldbug, creator of Urbit, programmer, thinker, one of the best book recommend recommenders I have ever encountered. So I am really, uh, I am really in awe of the amount of information that's going to be broadcast today because of, uh, well, partly I think this is a very uh, special time because of the election because of Elon Musk taking over Twitter recently. So it really does feel like the right time to have this kind of conversation, talking about the balance between liberty and order. So once again, before we get started, as always, make sure to subscribe, like, hit the bell. All of that really helps the channel grow. And I'm going to start with Angel just asking that question outright. How do you balance liberty and order? Let's go from there and uh, let's start the whole process. Hmm. Uh, man, I mean, if I could answer that, I guess I would be king of the universe, wouldn't I? <laughs> but I think I think uh, it kind of reminds me of the the false dichotomy. I think between a kind of you know individualism and collectivism. I think that you need a you need a collective from which to be individuated from which to be an individual right it doesn't exist otherwise and you cannot have a collective unless you have a group of individuals coming together i think it's similar you need some kind of order in order for freedom to happen right in writing there's there's all these poetic forms you know the sonnet and the haiku and all these sorts of things uh and this the structure is very rigid Right. You are you are very confined in what you are able to do. But for some reason, many, many artists, including myself, feel an immense amount of freedom when working within those confines. Right. So I think it's about figuring out what the balance is. And that I mean, that I mean, depends on, you know, the circumstances and what it is you're trying to do. So it's a hard question to answer, really. And before I go to Curtis, just to uh, keep this within the frame of what's going on right mm -hmm. now, this moment with the election going on, is there anything that you want to impart to the people listening regarding that? Uh, I would say to make sure to go to Krispy Kreme and get your free donut after you've, <laughs> after you've voted. <laughs> All right, Curtis, uh, now, now on to you. How do we balance uh, these two things out? I think the main thing Angel and I disagree on is the Krispy Kreme. I, I don't <laughs> think that donuts are good for you under any circumstances. Uh, I would say that you should, um, whatever you do today, you should um, um, grill a steak or um, a portobello mushroom if that's what you prefer. Oh, you uh, and and you know and and so just on health, I feel I've scored a knockout already. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, other than that. I don't, um, not only, I, I really don't disagree with anything Angel said. In fact, I agree pretty enthusiastically with it. I want to offer maybe a slightly different metaphor, which is um, that sort of the opposition between these two things is not 
I, I would say, a valid dichotomy. Uh, the metaphor that I use more often is that <clears throat> liberty depends on law. You can't have liberty without law. There's no such thing as liberty without law. And so what we're really talking about here is, and, and this is something that was felt very, very deeply by the founders' generation. They were all, one thing that you get, the impression that you get if you read you know, the world of the 18th century is that this is a nation of like law nerds, basically. It's really strange. And <laughs> from, from our perspective, uh, but you don't have liberty without law. Law, you know, you don't have rights without law. You don't have liberty without rights. That's fairly straightforward. And I would argue that, again, to echo exactly what Angel said, you don't have law without order. And the metaphor that I usually use to describe how you don't have law without order is that I would say that, that lawful order is a kind of unstable equilibrium. And for those of you without a you know, strong physics background, an unstable equilibrium is like a pencil balanced on its point. So the closer you get to the point of the pencil, the less force is needed the less arbitrary, unpredictable force is needed to hold the pencil upright. If you made that pencil the size of a telephone pole and you stood on a ladder next to it, you could probably hold it up with your hand because you would never let the telephone pole size pencil get far enough from top dead center. You'd be pushing back against it at even the slightest motions. This is how a person can hold up, hold up, you know, 1200 pound Harley or something balanced. Uh, 1,200 pound, I don't know. And um, so when you're looking at that situation where the pencil is perfectly balanced on its point and law and order really pertain in that society, you would say two things. You would say the best government is when the pencil is upright and the less force you're applying to that, the better. This is all true. However, when your pencil the size of a telephone pole is lying on its side, that regimen is like, it's like Newtonian physics in a relativistic context. It's right, you know, Newtonian physics is perfectly right for a tennis ball, but, you know, for, for protons traveling at half light speed, it's, it's extremely wrong. So, you know, the, the sort of the libertarian ideals that I, you know, imbibed, you know, from, from Mises and Rothbard and, you know, Hayek and many great lights of libertarian writing. Really, I don't disagree with any of those points, but that is a sort of Newtonian regimen for a system, a, you know, a, a polity in which law and order pertains. If you think about basically, uh, you know, in that uh, conversation with, uh, with Ben Burgess, which didn't go super well, uh, you know, I sort of challenged him to extend, you know, his knowledge about the government of, uh, of Norway to the government governance of Haiti, uh, in which I believe the, the de facto most powerful person in Haiti now is a gang leader named Barbecue. He's um, he's trying to uh, he's he's I think he just released his embargo on 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 energy across the port or something. Um, it's really, it's, it's a pretty extreme situation. And um, Ben, who is a very, very, very good liberal, was, was telling me that what Haiti really needed was a higher minimum wage. 
which may or may not be true. I, I, you know, I sort of, but it sort of seems less applicable to the problem of barbecue. So the question of how <laughs> you take a place such as Haiti or Venezuela, um, you know, Venezuela is perhaps a, you know a better better example. Uh, you know, this is the country with the most natural resources in South America. Not coincidentally, it's suffering from what development economists call the resource curse, even if they don't necessarily understand it. And it's prostrate to anarchy. And there are these like, so there are these sort of anarchic forces called, called Tordobas, you know, the kind of local communist revolutionary militias that uh, are part of the Maduro regime. Crime is immense. This is a society in complete chaos. And so when you, you, you ask how to apply libertarianism to this situation of the pencil very much lying on its side, possibly even in a ditch, possibly even somewhat buried. And you say, well, the right way to govern is to move your hand as gently as possible on the eraser of the pencil. You're just not in reality. And so the creation mm -hmm. of, of order, and this is something, it's like many things. It's like, you know, broken windows policing or something is another example of this, you know, where you're sort of having to explain this concept of governance that was just never even questioned before you know, 1750 or so. And so, you know, we really, we the people, and this is one of the reasons why I'm against democracy, is we the people do not have the faintest idea of how to do our job. And so, you know, that's both the case for order above law, order before law, and, you know, the case against, you know, the situation in which we pretend to govern even though we have no capacity to govern. Before Angel responds, Curtis, I do have uh, one question regarding what you said about Mr. Burgess. You called him a liberal. Maybe this is a game of semantics on my part, but it seems like he is more leftist than liberal if we're talking about I, you liberal know, in the classic sense. I, I don't I don't recognize those divisions. Uh, you know, liberal is just a nice way of saying it. I could equally say communist. Uh, you know, if you try to basically, <laughs> you know, do a cluster analysis of, you know, uh, what's what historians call prosopography, if you just in, analyze connections between people and you say, well, you know, is there a difference between a liberal and a Republican in a cluster analysis of the social graph. Yeah, it jumps out at you and beats you over the head. You know, is there a world where, you know, Republicans throw parties to which no liberal is invited? Maybe liberals throw parties to which no Republican is invited automatically and normally. Now, if we look at the relationship between progressives or leftists or communists, you know, my, my Stalinist, uh, you know, grandparents used the word progressive uh, to the end of their days. They would never use the word communist to me. Uh, they, in fact, uh, told me that they met uh, they met at a communist party meeting. But when I asked my grandmother about it, um, my sadly deceased grandmother, she said, oh, no, it was a meeting of the American uh, League for Peace and Freedom or something like that. You know, they just invented the communist front back then. Nowadays, everything is a communist front. But the except Twitter, maybe. But um, you know, but I kind of doubt it. But um that was the, during, by the way, the Hitler-Stalin alliance, right? That's why they were uh, all for uh, peace at that point. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. no. They were <clears> – <throat> this was um, – I mean, 
so the Hitler-Stalin alliance distinguished. Yes, the Hitler. Yes. Oh, sorry. Exactly. This was the kind of time yes. when they kind of pretended to make common cause with America first. I see what you mean. In any case, if you do a social network analysis of, the, of say, progressives versus liberals, or if you imagine a world where there are parties to which progressives do not invite liberals or liberals do not invite progressives, you'll see that really the distinction is nowhere near as clear, has never been clear. You know, you'll sometimes see mm. euphemisms like very liberal, uh, you know, and and I, I simply don't recognize this concept mm. of a distinction there. I, mm. In fact, the word progressive in is used in the Venona transcripts, which are dispatches by Soviet agents from the U.S. sent back to Stalin. So, I mean, it's a piece of Soviet rhetoric as well. And, and you know, that's not, uh, that's homologous. That's not analogous. Those things come from the same source. You know, they, that's why my grandparents in the 30s thought of the Soviet Union as part of the international progressive movement. No one would have blinked a second mm -hmm. in either Moscow or New York if you'd said that. And so, you know, uh, <laughs> sure, I'll, let's call him a liberal. What, what would he like to call himself, do you think? Well, I'm curious what Angel has to say about this, because Angel, since you're an advisor for FAIR, I see organizations like FAIR being an example of uh, organizations that are pretty recent, mind you, that are getting a lot of more of the Bill Maher type liberals, more of the fence sitters that don't like a lot of the wokeness that they're seeing mm -hmm. to step back a little bit and not be so afraid to talk about the problems that they're seeing. So already I am mm -hmm. seeing a bit of a... Uh, division going on here but that's just me so angel curious would you agree with curtis on his definition of a uh, liberal here uh i mean it's a definition and that's part of the problem with these labels is that they're fucking stupid pretty much <laughs> you know people think what they think about themselves and they think what they think about other people and those things don't necessarily cohere in any intelligible way you know i mean for the last year and a half people have been insisting to me that fair is a far right organization doesn't uh, the f stand wait doesn't the isn't the f for far and, and the r for right <laughs> yeah it's the f is the f and fair is for far right yeah um, yeah it's the far it's the far ai uh yeah, yeah. sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know people have insisted insisted to me that it's a far right organization it's an anti-woke organization i do not feel that way i never have felt that way i'm certainly not a far right person um but other people have also insisted to me that fair is a crypto woke organization and a left wing we have a left wing agenda um, what is what you know <laughs> can i can i can i ask what the word supposing obviously that's not true um but supposing yeah. the word the words far right meant something to you like uh -huh. what would they mean well just that we're you know uh th that's the thing that i was getting to is is that if we disagree with any with a particular tenet of somebody's political perspective, we immediately get labeled. And this by we, I mean anybody, you know, not not necessarily even just fair, which but fair does have this happen a lot. Um, but the minute we disagree with a, a particular tenet or a core tenet, whatever someone considers a core tenet of their particular ideological bent, they are considered immediately to be lumped into the opposition. And so, so let me, know, let you, me, you become far right if, if you disagree with what they consider to be just common sense progressivism or leftism or whatever. 
can I, can uh, I, can I offer another metaphor here for mm-hmm. like how I interpret the term far right? Well, you know, people think of the kind of political spectrum as linear and they always think of themselves somehow in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And if you think of the political spectrum on a historical sense, which is not a fisheye lens focused very closely around the present, what you will find is that 99.9% of history is also far right. And so far right in a way from the perspective of what we might think of as a revolutionary bubble. I noticed that in an attempt not to seem far right, you have a, a Shea biography behind you and a copy of The Jungle. Um, is that, <laughs> that would be up in Sinclair's The Jungle. Um, the, the um, um, you know, probably most of the books on your shelf are from, you know, the 20th century. So sort of that's a kind of bubble in and of itself. Yeah. Even though, you know, as the great German historian Leopold von Ranke um, based um, is the great German. Uh, I, I haven't read that, but it's supposedly a good one. Um, is the great German uh, historian Leopold von Ranke, who was not a Nazi, uh, he was a Prussian uh, from the 1890s, once said, "Every era stands equal before God." And so, you know, mm-hmm. to say that basically, when you're to the left, whatever exactly that means, but we have a sense of what it means. You know, when you're to the left of 99.9% of history and you have, you know, the, the, the mm. presumably laudatory biography of this, uh, you know, very questionable figure, Ernesto Guevara, on your shelf, <laughs> um, you know, imagine if, if, if you know, we, you, we tuned in tomorrow and on your shelf was um, maybe Albert Speer or uh, I mean, these are perfectly legitimate books published by, you know, mainstream houses. But, you know, why are all these books about Hitler, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, someone found that you had a sympathetic book about Hitler on your shelf, you know, something by Leon de Grel, for example, you'd be done, you know. And and so there's a strange um, that's a really strange geometry. It's sort of characteristic, characteristic of a kind of mindfuck, these sort of zero to one continuums, I find, are kind of a good way of getting out of that in some sense to say, yeah. well, relatively, where are we? So, you know, one way to think about sort of the Overton window from that perspective is that your Overton window is basically an Overton bubble. Imagine that it's a very, very small bubble, but essentially the spectrum that you can see is entirely within the bubble, yeah. which you, you still think of the Overton window. If it is a window into some larger space, then you think of it somehow as in the middle of that space, but it's not really in the middle of that space. And so, you know, mm-hmm. what you're, what they're saying is that basically your ideas have gone off the reservation. They're not, yeah, they should not I be don't... visible. They yeah. should not be visible from the mainstream. And what's creepy about that, you know, to those of us, you know, um, who <laughs> have lived through the five years is to watch ideas go off the reservation in real time. Mm-hmm. Because it seems that actually the reservation is either shrinking or moving, like something's happening there. And and why it's happening is not exactly very clear or obvious. And so the problem yeah. is, as soon as you have a perspective that's kind of this broad about 
what the hell is even going on here that automatically makes you quote far right and so you know this sort of starts to take on the perspective of it's sort of like a like imagine you're in like Scientology or some other kind of a cult where like everything outside of Scientology is kind of forbidden or bad or whatever. It's right. like, yeah, far, exactly. It's, I, it's, it's far out, you know, and I don't, and, I don't and, bother with, with the, these language games. Like it's just a waste of time as far as I'm concerned, because anything that anybody means by conservative or liberal, I mean, people have, I've never considered myself conservative, but I've gotten that a few times from people that that's what they mm -hmm. saw me as. And I, I just realized, yeah, these labels just don't mean anything, really. They, they, I, I think it's be I think it's better if you basically take your label and instead of making it a label that is attached to ideas, you make it a kind of social label of people's associations. And yeah, so, and I don't want that. You know, <laughs> so 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 you know, basically, I came up with this stupid yeah. metaphor where I just ripped off Tolkien, which everyone hates. Where you know, red state people are hobbits and blue state people are elves, or at least ruling the ruling, you know, white progressive class, essentially, and whoever it adopts into it because it has an adoptive system. Yeah. Those are elves, right? You know, and yeah. so instead you have this like elf, elf versus hobbit, you know, uh, you know, fight. It's just um, silly. I don't. And, yeah, and it's, it's, it's retarded. It's, mm. uh, excuse me. But there could um, be a um, there could be a simpler way of going about this, though. So I think the simpler way may be to say, how much are you willing to let whoever is ruling you be able to get away with in order to make the kind of society that you want to live in? At mm. least to and me, I, whether we're talking about far right or far left, that seems to be what both sides are willing to completely give to whoever it is in charge. But yes, Curtis, go on. So by definition, it's not you know a question of whether you're willing to give it to whoever's in charge. That's like saying, am I willing to fly faster than light or not? I, it belongs to whoever's in charge. And whoever's in charge has mm -hmm. that power, whether they like it or not. You know, the Supreme Court tomorrow could order Joe Biden to stand on his head, and if he couldn't do it, to hand over the presidency to Vice President Harris. Uh, they don't do that, but they could. Um, you know, they would have to have some <laughs> case. They would have to follow some process. Some case would have to come to the them yeah, that they would have to resolve say, in this in this strange <laughs> manner but you know essentially they're sovereign you know the the sovereignty one of the things that i like to say is that sovereignty is conserved it always belongs to someone mm -hmm. and so if you're thinking about i have rights against some power okay your rights are a kind of negative power they're a kind of sharing of power therefore so you're saying actually not that i have rights against some power but that somebody will enforce my rights against this power and then mm. what you're really saying is that those two powers should share power and then your question is why they don't just merge into one power and so you you know the regime mm. again you know so sort of all of these 18th century devices like the balance of power and so forth um, have created various kinds of interesting chaos and, and factional conflict, uh, but they've they've basically never solved the problem of how to watch the watchdogs. You always get some set of self-watching watchdogs. Mm. But is there an alternative here? Like at least the last couple of years, we've seen people voting with their feet. Some went to Florida, let's say, because they liked the way that the political situation was there. And as somebody who, like I told you before we got on the air, whose parents came from the USSR, me too, actually, like I was born in the USSR. This is something that we highly value 
Could it be better? Absolutely. But so far, any kind of solution that people have talked about, including an unqualified reservations where it's all about waiting till the opportunity is right and then seizing power. Well, like I said before, who are those people? They're, they are going to be the people who are going to be the ones to seize power and they would want things to be done their way. Mm. What do we do then? How do we make sure that they don't screw up royally? get a yeah. bunch of sycophants around them and uh, say, you know what, all the separation of power stuff, let's just throw that in the trash. It never mm -hmm. worked. That's, that's the so, elephant in the room for me. Yeah. So, so if, you've ever, if you've ever worn an Oculus, uh, there, was a, there was a fun news item in the news recently, which is that Palmer Lucky, the inventor of Oculus, who no longer works at Meta or on Oculus, has, has devised, and they showed a picture of this devilish thing, has devised an Oculus that would actually, could kill you from within the game. Thus, you know, lending a new meaning to, you know, the <laughs> permadeath, right? You know, we, we, amazing, like, you know, he, this was not his idea. It was inspired by some anime um, you know, I really should be into anime, but I'm just not. Yes, you know, yes, you and, and 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 uh, it was inspired some by some anime. It was really a brilliant idea, and and you know, I like this sort of thing because it basically kind of reminds us of the exception to the rules. So, you know, uh, imagine you're the CEO of Chipotle. Okay, and you go crazy, and you're like, okay, you know, I'm gonna put um, fentanyl in the burritos i'm gonna put just a little bit not mm -hmm. gonna screw up it's gonna be just just gonna render it's like msg it's gonna render them subtly more delicious so i'm gonna put fentanyl in the burritos my sales are gonna go up nobody knows why and then everything is great six months later somebody makes a mistake with one of the bags you know um kills you know thirty thousand people with fentanyl lace burritos uh, you know, is this something that could happen in reality? Is this something to be afraid of? Should we say, instead of this system, this is such a scary system, this is such a scary thing, think about the amount of trust you're putting in someone when you let them prepare food for you. They can mm -hmm. kill you just like this. You know, they could they could put cancer-causing aflatoxins in. That, that would, you know, <laughs> it would be totally untraceable. Uh, you know, it, it's yeah. this immense, you know, so, so, you know, are we safe from these CEOs? The answer is obviously no. And what we need instead is for the customers of Chipotle to elect, not just, you know, I mean, even to elect a CEO that snaps, you know, still smacks of corporate monarchism. No, they should, um, there should be checks and balances. There should be one body that, that checks the food to see how it tastes. We should separate testing the food for safety from taste verifying. We will need a body of elected representatives for each of them. People in Cincinnati might like the Chipotle burritos a little bit different from those in Denver. Uh, you know, perhaps we could even have direct democracy governing Chipotle. So the new flavors could be voted on by the customers and and, you know, or or actually the customers. But the customers will not just get to vote on flavors. No, they'll 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 set the hours of the employees and they'll decide who to hire and fire, you know, because they they, they want to have obviously people they like and, and, and people they trust serving them the burritos. You never know. Even an employee could be a poisoner. Anyone could poison these burritos. Right. And so, you know, when you look at kind of this this approach of um, first of all, this is an approach of like systematic, bizarre paranoia. 
And now you might say that, okay, all of these things would would break the law. And like the federal government is standing by vigilantly with its like vigilant consumer regulatory apparatus. You know, consumerism was actually kind of in the mid-century, this kind of big quasi-communist cause. It's very weird. It's like people sub subscribe to like consumer reports because they're like family is progressive. And the, and, and, but today we've had an interesting experiment in the regulatory state, which is that we basically turned um, Amazon <laughs> um, into Alibaba. And right now you can go on Amazon and find some weird thing with a weird brand name like Kapunk or Queeg. You know, have you, have, you, have you heard of these products off of Amazon? You know, the Queegs, you know, or whatever. And like totally unbranded products regulated by no one i think in some cases they may actually be shipped directly from china mm. you know and nobody there cares at all basically and you know things are basically fine and and so you know and and this then these people are utterly mercenary and motivated entirely by money mm. and entirely by like short-term you know money so if you basically look at you know okay why does this system work as well as it works it is not because it is being vigilantly regulated into place it's because the first thing that basically capitalism selects for in its monarchs is just like any level of basic competence. So, you know, the like guy who is competent enough to become a fortune for 500 CEO of Chipotle, I assume Chipotle is <clears throat> that awesome. Uh, you know, this guy is not going to be like this weird psychotic like poisoner. Maybe, right. maybe he won't be brilliant. Maybe he won't be Steve Jobs. Maybe he won't be Tim Cook, right? You know, but the thing is you could take probably the 495th worst CEO in the fortune 500 and you could put him in charge, absolute sovereignty over San Francisco. And you would see a San Francisco that would just blow your mind as to how different and better it was. And you take the 500th. Let's take number 500. This guy's drunk all day, right? You know, he's still going to do a better job than this insane system you came up with when you were paranoid about fentanyl and the burritos. Mm. So that's basically how I regard <laughs> what we're doing today. Now, you know, get out there and vote and, um, yeah. well, you know, grill yourself a nice, nice steak afterward. Angel, any issues with this? Uh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I... I it's a lot to take in, I guess. I don't yeah. know. It's, I, mean, um, I, I could name a couple of issues, but I, I want you to answer first, Angel. Let me know what you think. Well, I mean, you know, there there are definitely problems with the system. And there are definitely ways that people can introduce fuckery into the system because the system is not perfect. But I would say it's a pretty not... ingenious system. And for all its flaws, you know, I, I tend to agree with, I think, was it Churchill who said, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. So if you, uh, if you make a, if you make a quadrant of people who believe, you know, I, I think that Churchill was exactly right, but maybe not in a way right. that um, I think that I'm not sure if Churchill said that. it may be an apocryphal quote, but um, yeah, it might be. The, that's been, a, that's been attributed to a lot of people. So, but if you make a little quadrant about, you know, and, and it's true in a sense. So there are, there are three forms of government as Aristotle, you know, taught us uh, monarchy, oligarchy, and democracy, the rule of one, the rule of the many of the, of the few and the rule of the many. Mm -hmm. And, these forms will frequently masquerade 
as each other. So there's like a symbolic monarchy, for example, in the UK right now. Today, everybody kind of knows that Charles III isn't really the king, that he's just this kind of actor who wears king clothes, that he's not like Henry VIII and being a functional unit of government. You know, at one time, this deception was actually meaningful and useful. So if you basically look at the way I sort of grew up inside what you might call the deep state, Uh, my, my dad was at the State Department, Uh, My mom was at DOE, uh, and my stepdad was on the Hill for many years and now teaches at Hopkins Sice. And, you know, one of the things that you can observe if you look at the federal government is you say, well, in what sense is this a democratic system? And you're looking to work that through from first principles. And one of the reasons you're looking to work that through from first principles is that Essentially, if you think about what the word democratic means in our world today, it means legitimate. So essentially, an undemocratic government is one that is defined as illegitimate. So, for example, if you look at um, there's a country whose uh, formal name is the DPRK. That's the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. That's uh, three euphemisms for democracy and one place name. And that's, of course, North Korea. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're North Korean, if you're in North Korea, you might want to be kind of fighting back against this ten- tendency. And you might want to say, in what way is our DPRK democratic or peoples or a republic? And because, again, these forms frequently masquerade as each other. And what you'll find is that you will almost always find some kind of defeat mechanism on democracy. You will almost always find that the wires in some way are not hooked up. There is a reason for this, which is that actual democracy, as opposed to, you know, the very, very useful pretense of democracy is a terrible system of government. It's almost never existed. It's almost never worked. It can be useful as kind of a momentary force in transitioning power from one responsible body to another. Historically, the choice is monarchy or oligarchy. Monarchy is much more common and, um, you know, is even someone like David Hume thought. What exactly exactly is it that you're proposing? What What is, so, so, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, so if you look at the, if you look at the defeat mechanism in um, today, if, if you look at our system of government for which basically claims to be democracy in which I assert is actually an oligarchy mm-hmm. um, and you're and, and you say, OK, we have a formal mechanism of government that is not actually operational. So, for example, what is the defeat mechanism that prevents Charles III from exercising the full powers of Henry VIII. It's not really anything in the law. It's just like, well, you know, by custom, his royal prerogative is handled by, you know, the prime minister. And it's custom because that's the way we've always done it, basically, I guess. It's a tradition. It's not even on paper. And, you know, you'll constantly... There are a few other reasons it, why Charles wouldn't, wouldn't be able to seize power right now if he decided he wanted to do that. What are, what are those reasons? I mean, I don't think anybody would listen to him. I don't think anybody would do it. Uh, really? Are you <laughs> you sure? know, if he just decided, uh, you know what, I want to actually become king of England right now. Sure. Uh, sure I want to take sure, full sure. control of, of parliament and just handle that whole thing. So, so, uh, so, so. You need so a few people to start murdering some other people. Let's, and uh, you know, people, decide to people, do that and why. And, you know, people assume that 
the sort of the love of the population for its system of government is very great because in the past it has been very great. But uh, in the present, uh, I would say it's really not particularly great at all. And one of the things that you see in, if you're looking again for this defeat device that basically convinces people that they're living in a democracy, but they're not, it's actually, it's, it's hiding in plain sight because what's the, what's the best way to hack an election? The best way to hack an election. Oh, is better be careful. We're election. on the- we're on yeah. YouTube. Okay. All right. All right. We're on YouTube. The best. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> All right. Listen, AI, you know, yeah. let me contextualize that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And listen, if you want to help break the rules out until YouTube destroys it, make sure to subscribe while you okay. still, still have time. Okay. And- okay. 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 Yes. It's, it's, it's only a figure. It's only a figure of speech because the, the best defeat device is always to have the wires and switches there and all the lights flashing as they are with the British monarchy, but not actually hooked up to anything. Mm. Wait, by the way, Curtis, I think you have the laptop on, you have the video playing at the same time because I hear it right now. I did not hear it before. The video is playing on. And I would definitely be curious about what uh, Angel thinks of this whole thing uh, as well because we do want to aim for not what the problems are, because you're right, there are a lot of problems, but what Mm. exactly are the solutions that are being proposed right now that are the most realistic, that are not going to result in some dictator sitting there surrounded by a bunch of toadies? That's what I want to avoid, as I'm sure everybody. Yeah, uh, that's that's certainly the the issue. I think part part of the problem that I'm hearing and part of the problem that I'm seeing is kind of the way that people treat this stuff and think about this stuff. So when, you know, when we talk about presidential elections, we're going to have another one soon. Uh, and the way people talk about electing a president and the things that they expect a president to, to do or get done during their term, all the way, all the ways that we talk about it, all the ways that we think about it, all the ways that we argue about it seems to me to betray that we feel as though we're electing a king. Or a queen exactly God. but but like, we're exactly. not but we're but not we're not People, and there's something maybe slightly orwellian about that you rather weird. than you know i, I was it's fixing weird. my maybe audio the, i was fixing my audio and you figured out where i was going next right <laughs> <laughs> wait wait but i just yeah. curtis i just want to make sure angel i i want to make sure i give you enough time uh, yeah. to uh finish the statement and don't worry curtis well, we are going to go right back to you but yeah I angel think, go on yeah, I mean, maybe it's all the Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings and stuff, but, <laughs> but I think, I think that's a problem. I think that that mindset is a problem, um, because that's not what we're doing, and that's not what we should do, right? We should well, understand we- where we're coming from and what we're actually doing and how this actually works. And I think part of the reason why our system is and can be so dysfunctional is because there's a lot of responsibility placed on us individually and collectively to understand it and to participate in it intelligently. And that's not something that we tend to do. I don't think that, and I'm not, I'm not putting words in Curtis's mouth necessarily, but I don't think that the solution to that is to then change the game altogether and make, you know, remove that as an option. I think the answer is to do what we can to help people interact more intelligently with the system that we have because when it when it is interacted with intelligently it is better than what i can imagine and i what i think history can tell us about you know giving one dude 
the the authority to kind of run things, right? The, the benevolence never seems to last very long, even in a, a benevolent dictatorship or, you know, if you want to call it the CEO of America or whatever you want to say. Uh, even if that guy is perfect, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll bring this up. There's, a, there's this awesome comic book called Red Sun. And it's basically a kind of, you know, what if parallel universe story where uh, Superman's rocket ship lands in the Soviet Union instead of in Kansas in the United States. Right. So it lands in the Soviet Union. And like what happens to this this God, basically this God alien who looks like a human when when he's been brought up in the USSR. Right. And it's a fascinating it's a fascinating book. It's really, really this is just not interesting actually Soviet. To think this is post-Soviet. This is like uh, yeah, I can't remember exactly, but it's yeah, the Soviet Union yeah. or you know, communist Russia. Um, but you know, he's brought up there, and the interesting bits are that he's still Superman, right? In the sense that he still is sort of compulsively dedicated to helping people, and that's his intention. That's what he's trying to do. But because of his upbringing, because of the different framework that he's been brought up in, he has a different way of going about that. And what he ends up being is a benevolent dictator. What he ends up being is, you know, this force from the sky who, who imposes martial law and has, has the, the, the will and or has the, 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 you know, the benefit of the people in mind but still ends up being this terrifying oppressive force that everyone is scared of and everyone secretly hates, but is terrified to say anything about. And, you know, spoiler alert, but like part of, part of what happens in the story is that he begins to recognize this and he realizes, Oh, I'm going about this the wrong way. I'm basically, you know, torturing and oppressing people for their own good and nobody likes it and nobody feels that I'm giving them the thing that I'm trying to give them. So I need to rethink this right now. Of course, you know, you could write the story a zillion different ways if you were the writer, but I think that's a fascinating way of thinking about this particular thing. You know, that's so, Superman, right? That's, that's like the greatest person ever, right? There's nothing bad about him. He's, he's, you know, pure and good to the core, but even, even that person in that circumstance will still become an oppressive force. And we so, couldn't so, hope to be as good as that. And so, the next guy and the next guy and the next guy, you know? So so I think that when you look at the way you think about monarchy and the way most people in our society think about monarchy, mm -hmm. it's also very, very affected by that same bubble effect, which is kind of like a fisheye lens in which, you know, history since 1900 seems to be about 85% of history and before you know right. the 19th century is maybe another 10 percent, and then you've got five percent after that and then it you know dwindles off pretty well to the invisible so it's kind of you know it would be you know to ask you basically how this perspective applied to louis the 14th um or frederick the great or caesar or you know any number of Chinese emperors would be. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of strange analysis to have in your head in a world in which, first of all, you know, essentially what we're talking about 
just to make it convenient, it's kind of, you know, the, the quarter millennium since the American Revolution. If you want to be really generous, you can throw the Eng English Civil War and even, you know, the words of religion into that. But you're talking about a revolutionary period that has sort of worsened and worsened. And in particular, when you talk about European history, which, like it or not, is the center of the historical world in 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 the period since uh, in the, the start of the 19th century, you're essentially, when you look at the dictate, the quote dictators in the period since 1800, you're essentially looking at a series of rebellions against what uh, was then, was originally the balance of power and was later the British Empire and which we now call the international community. Mm -hmm. There is no point of discontinuity in sort of the Anglo-American regime across these two centuries. It's just a sort of the balance of power shifts. One of the inevitable results of this is that essentially every regime on the planet certainly since 1945, but arguably well before 1945, is faced uh, you know, by this relatively unattractive choice of either becoming a puppet state or resisting the power around it. And it's the ability to resist the power around it grows weaker and weaker, more through soft power than through hard power, as to witness the utterly bizarre sight of the global George Floyd you know, movement in... Mm. 2020 there are no countries anymore once this happens right and the uh, you know maybe there were no george floyd protests in north korea so north korea is its own country right you know you're, you're not you have no 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 barriers to soft power certainly and so mm. essentially any country that is not part of the set is essentially a rebellion against the set in order to consider rebelling at all it needs to acquire the most effective, certainly in a military context, form of government, which is, again, simply a monarchy. I mean, obviously, there's a reason if you, you know, if you drive a car, it was made by a monarchy. Uh, if you go to a restaurant, you know, there's a chef. If you go to a movie, there's a director. Like, sort of everything that works is run by a monarchy. Well, you know, the same is no different for a rebellion. So when you're basically looking at these rebellions and the various sort of kind of ghastly things that happen in these rebellions, what you're observing is that these are nations at war. And so, for example, it's not, you know, wrong to attribute to say that there's a deep connection between the Holocaust and Nazi ideology and the kinds, the kind of union of democratic and monarchical power that Hitler represented. And it is not even wrong to say that that same Democrat, the same kinds of people who voted for Hitler were the kinds of people who voted for Trump. It's the petty bourgeoisie. This is just a sociological historical fact. It's as real as the Holocaust itself. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you when you look at these things, sort of the liberal criticism of them is is not wrong but when you basically say well you know what is different between henry the eighth and and hitler well you know henry the eighth maybe killed you know seven ten twelve fifteen twenty people who didn't need killing to me that's a very very different number than <laughs> he didn't million. have the technology 
That's the other thing. Uh, no, like, he did. He did. The 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 yeah. the Hutus in Rwanda had the technology. Mm. Killing people is actually pretty damn easy, and and has been done quite a bit in the past, and is really the uh, normal form yeah, of warfare. I mean, and Genghis Khan did a pretty good job without Genghis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Alexander Again, the Great, I mean, sure. machetes, yeah. but, machetes, but still, machetes. I mean, but no. still, but still, and so <laughs> and so the fact, kind of, the, yeah. the fact, the fact that your perception of kind of this form of government comes from this historical context basically sets it in kind of a slightly different light. If you're basically saying, Hey, wow, I'm evaluating this abstraction, which is true of every period in history. These are things that have nothing to do with kind of the rise of technology. I mean, mm -hmm. the ancient Greeks had democracy too, right? You know, they had no technology. And uh, so when you basically look at you know Hitler and even Stalin, and it, it really bears reminding, by the way, that when my grandparents went to Stalin in 1935, the set of atrocities that had been perpetrated in the Soviet Union was easily two orders of magnitude above anything that had happened in, in the Third Reich. Now they'd had longer to get started, but yeah, the yeah, um, um, yeah <laughs> right. So 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 so, and and the thing is, you know, even you know. What's going on in the 30s with American communists and Stalin, this is a really big digression, but they didn't view Stalin as a competitor. They didn't view themselves as traitors when working for, you know, when working with Stalin. They viewed Stalin as like a kind of basically loyal satellite. OK, maybe his 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 methods are a little bit rough, you know, so they were very surprised to find it a pure competition after World War Two. Uh, but, you know, I, again, and there you see, you know, atrocities committed by these dictators. But you have to bear in mind that Stalin is enormously enabled in certain ways. And Hitler is enabled in other ways by the United States. And That's so awesome. in a way, you're, you're, you're really, you're almost like, if you see the events of the Holocaust in the context of this whole, and of the Communist or whatever we're calling it today, um, I'm tired of this. Well, yeah, Hall of more. That's a yeah, yeah. I'm tired of. I you know I like I don't think about the Ukraine. Um, and and the but yeah, I mean that was only part of it. It was really not I, to to view the quote Hall of more as an ethnocide. You know I think evades the point. Uh, you know the general butchery of the Kulaks and the you know aristocrats all the way up to the Romanovs. You know this is a murder that is connived at. You know almost entirely by American public opinion. And, you know, everyone supports hmm. certainly the initial revolution. Later on, there's a little bit of anti-communism, but that relationship is not a relationship of convenience from 1941 to 1945. That is a much deeper and older relationship. And, and so, you know, the thing is, all these forms of government emerge from the 20th century with their hands quite bloody. And, uh, you know, certainly the firebombing of cities served no useful military purpose. And that was established mm -hmm. immediately after the war, not to mention the nuclear bombs. And so, you know, you can't say, first of all, atrocities are always more likely from the loser and the underdog. And secondly, we have plenty of atrocities to go around and we have plenty of, you know, connivance with atrocities. You know, Lev, you may know of the, uh, the U.S. connivance with the return of the, the white Russians and the, the Cossacks in 1945. More spoken of as a British thing. Um, what Nikolai Tolstoy has written about this. 
you know, that was Operation Keelhaul. That was the name. That was a U.S.-British operation returning Ru Rus Russian refugees to their deaths in the Soviet Union. Uh, that 500,000 people something? I mean, it ain't six million, you know, but like, you know, to... Uh, I think the the book that sort of the book to kind of set the kind of emotional context of World War II right that I always recommend because it's really accessible. It's a major publisher. It's Human Smoke by Nicholson Baker, which came came out about twenty years ago. Human Smoke is simply a you know a chronologically ordered timeline of tweet length excerpts from primary mm -hmm. sources as a history of World War II, and it will just like. So in any case, basically, you know, like this, this argument is sort of by no means kind of clear or one sided. It's limited in time. You can put it in a historical context and you can kind of explain how, you know, uh, Augustus Caesar would be relatively unconvinced by this argument because he would clearly see these monarchical rebellions as fundamentally uh, an epiphenomenon of this kind of revolutionary attempt to revolutionize the earth, which is already implicit in the American founding is mm -hmm. that universal con you know, that that's that sense of the United States as a seed of universal revolution. Well, mm -hmm. two, two things real quick. And then I want to get to angel thing. Number one, when it comes to judging the actions of the United States versus Nazi Germany versus Soviet Russia, I don't like this idea of having everybody be on this equal footing I also don't like the idea of saying that one of these is going to be absolutely pure and unblemished. Of course, war is hell. There's a lot of horrible things that happen. But still, mm -hmm. we make judgments at the end of the day of who we end up supporting. And one of the things that at least I am in favor of is not supporting aggressors, not supporting people mm. that go from one place to another, take it over, don't stop, keep going, keep acquiring... And again, I know yeah. you said that you don't want to talk about Ukraine, and we're not going to talk about Ukraine. But I'm going to leave it. Uh, at we, this. No, 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 no. Yeah. This is very. This is a very important okay. conversation because okay. it's another. It's another thing to put in in perspective. This concept. We have this thing we call international law in the 20th century, and if you go back and you read 18th century international law, not only does it not really have any relationship. Read like say, uh, you know, Vattel, uh, or even Grotius, who are kind of the founders of the kind of Westphalian system of international law. And what you'll find in those, um, um, in those books is this incredible system of like, which is essentially a system which, of what you might call, to use a tech metaphor, peer-to-peer -peer international law. Where, where basically, rather than sort of pretending, remember how we discussed how we pretend to elect a king or, you know, the British pretend yeah. to inherit a king, you know, that where where's, it's really, you know, a deep state in, in basically both cases. We can, not going down that, what that rat hole is, but we know where it, we know what it is. Uh, you know, so you have this international order which pretends structurally to be multipolar, but has not been multipolar not only in the lives of those now living but in the lives of their great 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 grandparents and so to really go back to a multipolar a genuinely multipolar order where anglo-american authority is not globally preeminent uh, you really have to go back to the 18th century and so what you begin to see this concept of, quote, aggression 
is entirely a late 19th century and early 20th century, you know, sort of system of belief. Because what you started to see in international law in the late 19th century was this a belief in perhaps like international arbitration. And the idea was that disputes should not be settled by war. They should be settled by, right. you know, some international body, which in fact sort of became a transnational body and was in fact a British body. In the older system of international law, which we still sort of in name are living in in many ways, which results in many, which causes many conflicts and confusions and really is just an essential ingredient in kind of misleading people about the nature of the world, even though they all know, you know, it's like, oh, you know, talk to some, talk to some very orthodox international relations scholar sometime and ask him what the difference is between global leadership and world domination. And, and, and you'll get, you know, you'll get a spiel of like very, very, very gauzy, you know, sort of things. In fact, you know, the U.S. empire is no different in its shape than the relationship between Athens and the Delian League. It's no different from the relationship between Rome, and the Roman Republic mm. and her federati. I would it's, say it's, it's different, though, than the relationship between, let's say, the United States and uh, Russia, for example, which so whatever it takes over, Russia, it, it turns... It turns to pure crap, and this has been proven many times again. Wherever sure, Russia sure. goes, it turns into crap. If there was so, a Delian League, if there was a place like Athens that took places over and spread Hellenism, that's all right. Russia, fine, you know. Russia is not Russia is not even an independent country. Russia is like it, it doesn't. It's not even. It shouldn't even be accorded that respect. And one of the things that you basically well, Russia is kind state, of run by a CEO. Kind of, kind no, of Russia. You, Russia actually. Putin, like you, you... Putin is a Putin is a very weak leader. Putin is no czar. Lev, you nodded, right? You know yes. that you know that to be true, right? You know, and and Putin is actually a very weak leader. This is one of the things, and and the position of you know the position of Putin, especially of Russia, especially with respect to her elite. Let's just go full Russia for a moment. All right, we'll get back full to Russia. Uh, how, how uh, and then we'll get back to international law. So, so you know, the tragedy of Russia in the 20th century, not just the 20th century, but also the 19th century, is the bad relationship between the state and the intelligentsia. And okay, good. <laughs> we're glad to see we're on that page, yes. right? Going back all the way to the freaking Decemberists, like you know, um, and and so Russia has always had this question: Is it Asia or is it Europe? And but if you looked at the elites at the time that Russian troops are marching through Paris, glorious moment never to be forgotten. And, um, um, you know, and, and the Holy Alliance is really a thing. The Holy Alliance is still in a way rebelling against English hegemony. And, you know, one of the first things the English do after using the powers of the East to win the war against Napoleon who, by the way, is a revolutionary leader, you know, despite being an empire, is they steal the colonies. They steal the colonies of Spain and Portugal, and, you know, which are also members of the Holy Alliance. So, right, you know, so in a sense, there's already this kind of East-West inferiority. However, when you look at basically who the elites are, you know, in Russia around, say, the time that Maestra is writing the Petersburg Dialogues, what you'll see is that they... Um, they're not Russians. You know, 
No, they're Frenchmen. You know, they 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 they're not Russians exactly. I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to that that line. They're not Russians. You know, they're more likely to speak French than Russian. Uh, you know, they're largely of German descent in many ways. Um, they're not mujiks. They're not these like shapeless figures working mm. on Tolstoy's farm. You know, mm-hmm. and 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 so these, but these are also the people that hold the government jobs. These yes. are nobles in a system where that that has that division has not yet occurred. So they're sort of comparable to like a Caesar who would be a general and a writer at the same time. Whereas 400 years later in Rome, there's this rigid separation between the military and the um, what was called the grammarian caste. So that's like the relationship in Russia today between the Siloviki. How, how do you say that? Siloviki. Yeah, there you go. And, and, and the intelligentsia, which, by the way, is originally a Russian word, as I'm sure you know. Um, and, and, I, I wouldn't say the intelligentsia today in Russia. Well, I wouldn't say the oligarchs in Russia are I'm, intelligent by any means. No, they no, are no, far, no, 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 no. far descended no, below. No, no. That, there's a, there's the, yeah. I'm agreeing with you. There's, there's a separation between basically the patriotic Chilevike, something like that, and, and, and the unpatriotic intelligentsia and so basically you have pussy riot russia you have petersburg russia whatever the fuck and you have it's like petersburg moscow i think to some extent and not completely right but that's kind of the division historically and um and the intelligentsia are like the most unpatriotic you know first of all the russian intelligentsia have been unpatriotic for a hundred years and and you know a hundred years ago they're like you know, throwing like one bomb a day, they're blowing up the czar, they're killing his ministers, uh, they're assassinating Stolipin, they're like, you know, and they've become completely severed from the bureaucratic table of ranks governing caste. So when sort of the, the intelligentsia have kind of become detached from power, which like, you know, all aristocrats, they crave and their way of getting it back is twofold. One, it's to it's to throw bombs. The other way is to become devoted friends of England, of France um, and, you know, of America. Right. And and so you have this separation between, you know, mindless bureaucrats. OK, I think the best of them were not mindless, uh, you know, um, and um, who was the guy who was the procurator of the Povodonosov? Uh, he was a friend of Dostoevsky's, and he was the procurator of the Holy Synod. And uh, you know, I'd, I'd encourage you to read his memoir. So you know, you're basically going. And of course, the Marxist-Leninism in Russia is not an Easternist movement. It's a it's a Westernist movement. It's extreme Westernization. These guys are hanging out in Geneva. They're you know, Trotsky is hanging out in New York. You know, they're all they're all friends of America. This is mm. basically a foreign contamination that destroys Russia, right? Or this is how Povodonosov... Yes, yes, yes. Povodonosov predicts it, right? So Uh, let me quickly fast forward... Let me quickly fast forward this very strange, biased view Uh, of of Russia. I I want to get back to Angel soon as well, but yeah, go for it. Okay, so, um, you know... Maybe maybe we'll skip my international law dialogue, but read read peer peer national law. In any case, basically the this goes into the present, and the intelligentsia is still kind of grimly hanging on 
during the Soviet period. If you look at the core Petersburg intelligentsia, like, you know, Joseph Brodsky's like social network, those people are like still there throughout you know, the period grievously harrowed. And, and but then after the fall of the Soviet Union, they're just gone. They just leave the country. And so when you're looking at the Soviet Union, you say, oh, I'm looking at, you know, basically monarchy here. Monarchy is bad. I'm like, OK, I'm looking at two things here. Three things. One, I'm looking at a very weak leader. Uh, who is beholden to all these strange, dark, weird little bureaucratic powers? That's one of the reasons he can't even fight a war effectively. Uh, I'm looking well, at a it's very. It's also weak why, leader. just real quick, it's also why he's fighting a war because if he doesn't yeah. keep doing something that's going to keep the public saying "rah rah rah, go Russia," they're going to start to wonder why are we going hungry? Why aren't we getting sure. enough food? But anyway, sure, sure. Well, I mean. Okay, uh, you know, uh, um, the the <laughs> I, I don't want to go get into how well Ukraine was being governed, but you know the um, nobody's perfect. Case, okay, go yeah, on. nobody's perfect. Exactly, we can agree on that. So you know, number one, you're looking at a very weak leader. Number two, you're looking at a leader that is hemorrhaging elites to a foreign power. This right. is why the Iron Curtain was there, right? As soon as the Iron Curtain was left down, Russia became this nation of peasants, right? You know, tracksuited, wearing Neanderthal Slavs. That's all he has to work with, pretty much. And that's a huge, huge problem. And of course, that's kind of a vicious cycle where the more tracksuited things get, you know, basically Russia becomes this Asiatic Neanderthal country and people like you and your family, you know, want to get the hell out. Right. You know, and and the third problem is that he's rebelling. He's trying to preserve his sovereignty in the face of this global empire that, mm -hmm. you know, historically destroys regimes like his and eats them for breakfast and ate Russia for breakfast in the 1990s. And everybody remembers how great the 1990s was. And so so the thing it, is, it could have been different. It could have been different at the I, time that we were leaving. The economy was picking up. My dad was able to get really lucrative jobs uh, doing uh, some uh, work in the uh, theater background industry. Mm -hmm. The point is that things could have gone a different direction. Yeah, but the problem no, no, was that the problem was here. that the FSB, as it's called now, KGB, it was called back then. They retained power. Gorbachev did not get rid of the bastard. And yeah. as a result, this Asiaticness, I think, is way more pronounced than it could have been if, if things went different. But anyway, sure, sure, sure. So, so you know, but uh, I think you know we'd probably disagree on the next level of things, maybe. And I probably have to respond. Yeah. You know, but I, but I want to get Angel in this uh, as well. So okay. Uh, okay. yeah, but you generally agree with that, that, <laughs> yes. that history. Yes. Okay. Good. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if it's um, useful necessarily to kind of go in that way i'm uh, at least not for me i'm i'm speaking more in terms of principle and practicality and not not as much in you know the way things turned out and perhaps how they might have turned out if certain dials were tuned differently uh historically speaking uh it seems to me that the problems you're pointing to about putin being a weak leader and having to to do what he's doing and those those all seem to me to be inevitabilities because of human nature and because of, of human social interaction and the way that people tend to be. And I, I was thinking as you were speaking about, you know, you mentioned this kind of the Overton bubble and the way that our historical bubble only goes back a certain amount of time and that that leaves a lot out. Right. And I'm thinking, well, even if we go back 2000 years, there is a ton that is left out sure. because you only get to hear from certain people, right? There's, there's a reason why, in my view, most of our 
media and entertainment that that revolves around this sort of stuff tends like there's a reason why there's a Netflix show called The Crown about the royal family, the English royal family. And there isn't really a show up called like, you know, The Poppers. And it's about just some <laughs> random fucking bunch of people who are super poor and they eat breadcrumbs. Right. Because mm. nobody wants to watch yeah. that shit because it's not interesting. There is there's a reason why Shakespeare but, uh... wrote about there's a reason why Shakespeare wrote about kings. It's because everyone knows who they are. And they're obviously going to be more interesting because their day to day lives don't just include don't die. And they also matter. Right. More. And, you know, so so there's that. Right. And I, I think that when we're looking at, you know, uh, what it was like under Louis the 14th, we're not really going to know because the vast majority of people who were living under that time did not have any kind of way of expressing whatever their desires were. But we do know generally speaking that there's a tension in human nature there's there's this tension right there's one tension is kind of what we talked about where people gravitate towards strong men and strong leader types right it's very easy for humans to get enamored with that uh when there's a group of people in some kind of situation a leader just kind of sort of presents himself like someone just decides to start taking charge and everyone else just kind of decides to follow them, right? That just happens naturally. I've been in so many group settings, like even even something as stupid as like an escape room, right? There's 15 people in this stupid room and they have to solve a puzzle to get out. Suddenly somebody just becomes the guy or the girl that everyone's but, listening to. This is and right out of Ma Machiavellians, by the way. I just want to say that was one book that Curtis recommended, which I right. absolutely loved. Uh, Angel, if you haven't read the Machiavellians, what you're talking about right now is right mm -hmm. out of the Machiavellians. Right. Let me flip that one but over. Well, hold on. Just yeah, yeah, before, yeah. before, let me lay out the, the second one. The first one is that, right? That's a, that's a human sort of tendency people have. Like, you know, just, you know, it's kind of like uh, like dogs. Like, I need to know who the alpha is. Like, let me just figure out who's leading this pack so I can just go with the flow. There's that aspect of human nature, and it is in, in direct tension with this other aspect of human nature, which is I don't like anybody's boot on my neck. I don't like anybody telling me what to do. I want freedom and autonomy. And those two things are constantly in tension, and what we're doing in history is basically pulling, you know, it's a tug of war between those two tensions. That's the way that I see it. And sometimes one side gets a lot of rope and sometimes the other side gets a lot of rope and that's what revolutions are and all that sort of stuff. That's the way I look at it anyway. And I think, I think that's inevitable. Now the question then becomes, well, what's the best system that sort of satisfies both of those things? And in my view so far, you know, I think any kind of, any kind of uh, oligarchy or monarchy is too much rope to one side. Right. And then, you know, you get crony capitalism, you get all this stuff with the way that our current system is functioning or not functioning. Right. There are plenty of problems. So it's not in any way to say that it's perfect. But I do think that the exercise of choice, the exercise of, you know, electing representatives who then become the leader that you follow and electing, you know, electing these people who then become people who who sort of do the work and take the lead and then you follow them in that way seems to balance things in an in an in a way that works better, right? Better at the very least than one guy who just has absolute power and you just kind of hope for his benevolence and strength, right? Like so Putin's weak. Uh if he were stronger, it'd be better. 
I I don't think so. I think he would just be an even worse scumbag. Uh, but that's just me. <laughs> I don't know. So 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 let me let me let me. Uh, you know, I, I had a couple of notes as you were speaking. One, I you know, your point about the escape room is is very well founded, which is that in order to execute anything, humans need to focus their efforts so that they're all pulling on the breadcrumb in the same direction. And the way that they will instinctively do that at scales, large or small, is that they will form structures with unequal levels of power. That is absolutely normal and instant. So the thing is, supposing that you were designing an escape room that you didn't want people to be able to escape from, one of the things that you would do is you would naturally suppress the ability to do that. And you would essentially say, okay, if they can't choose a leader, if they need, if, if they automatically choose a leader when trying to get out, if we prevent them from choosing a leader, perhaps we can keep them in. And so, for example, when the Romans would conquer, um, you know, a people actually eliminating the monarchies of the tribes and, you know, barbarian kingdoms they conquered was a top priority. They're like, you know, we get rid of Vercingetorix, the Gauls have no way to focus their efforts. Right. And so actually, if you want to basically disempower a people, that's exactly what you do. And you notice you're like, why, you know, do we, you know, is part of the official ideology of the revolution this extreme fear of monarchical organization? Why, yes, it is. I, it's sort of like, you know, saying, well, if we had a virus that, we had a bacterium that replicated um, in, in, in cats by having them eat mice, we would expect it to make the mice very friendly to cats. And indeed, that's exactly what toxoplasmosis does. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we have a sense that maybe this is what, you know, Marxists call a false consciousness, where it's something that actually, or what Gaetano Mosca calls a political formula uh, from the Machiavellians, um, nicely summarized in James Burnham's book, where it's like, this is a belief that basically corresponds to the belief that the powers that be are good and should rule us for our good. And to actually mask the belief that the powers that be should continue to be in the form of the people have power is a very, very interesting Orwellian structure. So going back to basically the defeat devices on the system, my um, YouTube forbidden question about elections, if you basically say, okay, Suppose we want to present the appearance of a system that looks like this, but the system that actually works like this is really, really scary. What do we do? Well, one way, one thing we could put in our ideology is we could put this interesting distinction in there between um, politics and democracy. Now, you know, one thing, especially as we vote on this historic midterm election day, you know, you can remember as it goes through your, your head, think about the word democracy and notice its positive context. It, democratizing anything is good. Now think about the word politics and note that it's, note its negative connotations. Anything is political bad. That's political mm -hmm. is bad. This is very funny because these things are synonyms. What is democracy without politics? I don't know. Ask Kim Jong-un. You know, <laughs> um, there must be, uh, you know, and, and so you're like, wait a second. And then you're like, you notice that this is a very, very deep kind of bias in or, or sort of deeply held belief in well, the American way of I thinking. I don't and think then you're like, 
I don't think they're synonymous in this context, right? I think when people think democracy, they're thinking, oh, you know, one person, one vote. Uh, Suppose there were no elections, many, right? It, That's what they're thinking. And then when you think there were politics, no elections, is it still democracy? If there are no elections, can you have democracy without elections? Without elections? Uh, yeah, I don't think so. No. Okay, that's great. Point, so, right? it's, so it's that's the whole, whole point. So basically, so let's say we want to have elections in theory, but not elections in fact. What we're going to do then is we're going to basically design systems that elect politicians right. who are not actually in control of the government. So this idea of basically depoliticizing the government and making it sort of neutral governance of experts is actually not something that dates to 2012, more like 1912. It's a very, very deep and old part of the American progressive movement to basically, you know, in like 1900, when like William McKinley is president, the idea that professors are like dictating like public policy is unheard of. It would be like saying, well, well bloggers are going to run the government in 2032. Right. And so the like this idea that basically democracy is good, but actually that doesn't mean having the people you elect have control of the government. Oh, no, we mean democracy in this higher, more spiritual sense that doesn't equate to giving the people we elect control of the government. And in just the same I think sense, that is Britain, what people think, though. I think that is that what is what people think. think. And so but the thing is, that thinking does not in any so way. Are you saying that the reality that's, that's you're saying so, that's not actually what happens? You're, what you're saying that's is not that actually the, what happens. And the so people we elect they, the people we elect to represent us do not then work the to to do not know, control the government enact law and all that. Sort no, of stuff. no, they don't control. That's the not happening. So how, so does it, the, how is it working? Then? So 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 the way it works is if you go to D.C., you'll notice that there's something that's called the executive branch. Uh, if you look at the executive branch objectively, and I would um, encourage you to do this to anyone, you know, try this test on anyone who works on the Hill. Say to them, actually, we don't have an executive branch. What we have is a legislative branch. Why do we have a legislative branch rather than an executive branch? We have a legislative branch because the policy, structure, personnel, and funding of this branch, of the agencies, is dictated not by the White House, but by Congress. They testify before Congress. Agency officials testify before Congress. They don't testify at the White House. And in fact, if you basically tell you know, every, anyone in D.C. that um, the executive branch as a whole would in fact not only work, but actually work better without the White House. Everyone will agree with you. Uh, now, they might say, they might protest that without a White House, there's no way to resolve interagency conflicts, for example, uh -huh. between state and DOD on areas of over, overlapping responsibility. This is true, but it can be solved, uh, you know, for $9.49 by something you can buy at any Walgreens, which is a Magic 8-Ball. If you have an international you know, interagency <laughs> conflict, just shake your magic eight ball and it will say yes or no or answer yeah. or ask again later. Right. And so actually, I what, don't know. What, we have both you, what, of those branches. We have. The OK. OK. So, so now now right? now let's and, go over to the legislative branch. Now let's go over to the legislative <laughs> branch. So if we look at the executive branch, we notice that the you know, the wires between the White House and the agencies are not quite as disconnected but, as the wires between Charles the third and the British Army, um, the Royal Army, but pretty close. And 
And when we look at the history of the Trump administration, I just bought this book by this guy, David Rothkopf, called uh, American Resistance, How the Deep State Staved the Nation. Rothkopf is, you know, his own podcast is called uh, uh, Deep State Radio. Uh, he's mm. kind of this. Like, I should bring him on the stream. You Which should. You? Uh, I, that would be super <laughs> fun. I don't think you do it. Uh, you know, and especially not after I write what I'm going to write. And, um, and, you know, I summarize in this review I'm writing of his book, I summarize his argument as, as, as follows. Uh, number one, um, there is no deep state. Uh, number two, the deep state is more powerful than the president. Uh, number three, the deep state <laughs> is actually good. Number four, there is no deep state. And, and, and so, you know, that's the level of like straight up O'Brien from 1984, like level of like confusion by which we've ruled. Now, you might say, OK, maybe the executive branch is really the part of the legislative branch. Where's the harm in that? The legislative branch is elected, too. Well, it is except that you might notice that if you look at the House of Representatives, it has a 98% incumbency rate. If you look at the Senate, it's about a 90-plus well, percent incumbency rate. Moreover, it has a system of seniority, which is nowhere mentioned in the Constitution, which forces freshmen into a, a position of complete and utter submission to essentially the permanent Hill staff, who then lies with and direct the agencies Public policy, none of this is mentioned in this piece of paper in a glass case somewhere, by the way. Uh, you know, public policy, you know, to the extent that government decisions are taken by this system, it comes from basically these giant omnibus bills, which are called laws, even though they resemble a law about as much as an elephant resembles a rabbit, um, that are not even <laughs> seen by the lawmakers who vote on them in this so-called parliament in which no vestige of actual parliamentary debate remains in a system and and where you look at actually when government decisions are made when course is actually changed in the system it comes from two places it comes from what we call lobbyists and what we call activists lobbyists are people who are there to corrupt it for money and activists are people who are there to corrupt it for power uh, corrupt is a strong word to use uh, you know maybe often improve it maybe many of these people are there to do influence. the right thing uh, influence it for there you go influence it thank you thank you thank you I don't want to sound like a crank here and and the um, I was about and, to and say so, you sound, you sound and, like you have you have you buy red yarn in bulk yeah yeah right right and and so and so when when you look at the system then you have the third branch the ju judiciary branch oh wait that's that one's the, I'm not even supposed to be democratic and so when you're looking at the system this is why basically I'm like you know the choice is not between monarchy and democracy the choice is between monarchy and oligarchy democracy is not a valid way to run a country it is a valid mm -hmm. it is a valid form of force that can be used by basically mob violence to change governments or elections to change governments sometimes uh you know more often the elections are are, are almost always illusory uh, and when they're not illusory they're very scary affairs i don't know if you've seen a third world election but like that we're seeing it now like, with um brazil, uh, brazil yeah yeah, sure, 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 sure. That's a real, you know, uh, but even there, you know, look at how much Bolsonaro changed the course of Brazil while he was president. It's the same place. It hasn't really changed. You know, when you look at how much, you know, Hitler changed Germany or FDR changed America, even you see enormous changes. People who are afraid of, you know, monarchy. I'm like, what do you think FDR was? What do you think Churchill was? They didn't wear a golden crown like they'd just been to Burger King, you know, I mean, and, and so when we sort of follow the lessons of, of the Machiavellians and we kind of look at the realities rather than sort of talking in these abstractions, we often find that the realities are much simpler to see and understand than the abstractions.
We can actually grapple with. I don't think it makes any sense to to equate FDR and Churchill to Hitler. They're both in control of FDR. Yes, Churchill. No, I just don't think that Churchill. I mean, it's it's. You're F- no, about, FDR. Look at look countries. at look at the circular reasoning that you're performing. You're defining dictators as bad, and then you say anyone who's not bad but is a dictator is not a dictator. And I'm I'm no, you know not, so not at so, all. But it's, so would, I think it's uh, would, markedly different. Is what was going? I, I would just all question these, the individuals r- real quick though. I would question with Churchill because Churchill, after the war, he was not reelected. If we're talking mm-hmm. about FDR, they did want him to keep going and going like that pink rabbit, but luckily he bought the farm and we did not end up having what could have been a very bad situation in the United States. So with with Churchill, I disagree. With FDR, I do kind of agree. Plenty of plenty of dictators have given up power, and certainly Churchill during the war. What you're saying is that Churchill had a had a nobler spirit and did not choose to be dictator for life. This is true. On the other hand, you know. Churchill's independence of FDR can be somewhat questioned. And, you know, the, the, like, there's a lot that we don't know about World War II simply because FDR did so much personally. And, sure. you know, if we look at our understanding of like, just historical understanding of World War II, we understand the Third Reich almost perfectly. Go to any, like, historian, like, buy a major book, you know, they'll disagree about a little thing, but it's just, like, so clear and vivid as if it was under glass. We understand the Soviet Union much less than we understand. There are still real mysteries about Stalin's Russia. And, and you know, but as far as FDR's Washington, it's terra incognita. It's all, almost mm. all the histories we have are very biased sort of, political propaganda or just uncritical hagiography hold on though going back, go, going back to churchill though if he were to say you know what guys i'm going to stay here for life you're not going to be able to do a damn thing about it what would happen then well it's unclear so in any in any there's what bruno um, bruno buena de mosquita um i'm trying to Bruce Bueno de Mesquita calls the selectorate and any power system. And so the thing is, when we look about look at Churchill's kind of rise to office, we don't you know, that is a time when you look at the first half of the 20th century, conspiracy theories in general are much more valid than those in the second half of the 20th century. We, we see people like Cecil Rhodes or Colonel House who operated in this very conspiratorial way in which personal power really mattered. That's not so much a thing, excluding like proximal origins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. That's not so much a thing, um, if you know that paper. <laughs> YouTube, um, we're still on YouTube. <laughs> Uh, um, um, that's, that's, um, it's just the lab leak. You can, can you, can you do lab leak on YouTube these days or is it not? Oh God. I don't even know, Curtis. I'm just, uh, uh, I'm sorry. I'm being sorry. on the straight and narrow. Like, a, I don't want to get you in trouble here, you know, like, like, and, uh, <laughs> no, if you don't want to get me in trouble, patreon.com slash break the rules, become a patron today. If you want more of these become amazing conversations, support this great show. Um, this has been super fun. And, um, yeah, so, so, you know, when we look at that, period of time things are very mysterious and so churchill clearly has backers he has there's a sense of you know there's this interesting uh historian called carol quigley who is an establishment Mm. pillar he was and he writes this strange thing about oh yeah i you know i've been examining the files of the secret society that controls the world and you know i'm going to write about them even though i'm not going to say who they are Uh, you know mentor 
Yeah, Clinton. So, so it is certain that the world is no longer governed this way. Okay, the world is not. I want to be very, very clear. The world in the twenty, even in nineteen seventy-five, is not governed by nineteen sixty-five. Is not like this. You know, nineteen thirty-five. It's like, moreover, it's it's more. It's not like the sort of power of these small groups. You know disappears if they're defeated it's more like it kind of spreads out and kind of becomes nothing so really you know the question you ask is an interesting one and i really don't know the answer and i don't know that anyone could reliably tell you the answer but you know to say basically i will tell you one thing that i know with every bone in my body which is that world war ii was not a marvel movie and should not be understood as a Marvel movie. For, furthermore, I would say that the current war in the Ukraine is not a Marvel movie and should not be understood as a Marvel movie. And, and, like, um, and, and so, you know, you have to basically, when you find a worldview like, you know, the kinds of objections to dictatorship that you've been giving me, in which a lot of the stories really have that kind of Marvel movie sound to it, and them and can be contextualized in ways that require taking perspectives that are outside of this non you know this overton bubble you know but in those perspectives things that really look three-dimensional from within the bubble start to look two-dimensional kind of like you know the the silhouette images uh you know in front mm -hmm. of the screen in plato's cave and so you know one of the reasons one of the main reasons to kind of read old books and read strange books uh, especially anything published before 1923, except a few, a very narrow stream of content is going to be far right. And so by any definition, yours or your critics. And so, you know, the thing is, you know, taking a position, sort of taking a stance or a perspective that is outside of this bubble doesn't necessarily involve becoming far right. Moreover, far right to me, it's a term like Gentile. It just means everything else. You know, um, you know, I'm partly Jewish, I guess. But if I'm, if I'm in Utah, I'm a Gentile. If a Hindu is in Utah, he's a Gentile, yeah. right? Because Mormons use the term too. And so you're basically, when you kind of say Gentiles are like this, Gentiles are like that, Gentiles do these things, Gentiles do those, those things, that, that kind of statement is not even wrong by definition because you're lumping together Hindus and Jews, and, you know, like, uh, mm. you know, so it's a sort of it's it's a it's a fundamentally and inherently kind of meaningless way to think in that you're basically creating a false category. And if you're able yeah. to basically read, you know, I, I mean, even even the Machiavellians is so great because it's written. Burnham is writing in the mid 20th century, uh, 1940 or whatever. He's writing for basically a, an essentially modern audience. But he's bringing you this stuff from what's called the Italian elitist school of political philosophy, mm. pre-World War I mostly, and sort of just outside the range of that bubble. And you step into that, and then you can kind of step to there from like, you know, De Maestra, or you can start treating like Hobbes with respect. You know, a lot of people still read Hobbes. You can kind of step off the mainstream platform. The and radicalization start pipeline. You'd start to look, we don't know, it's our YouTube, nothing to see here, move along, you know, and, and you can start to kind of move into that terra incognita beyond this like bubble of the present. And it's like seeing the, the whole present, this whole revolutionary period as a single unity in a larger history. Mm. It's like seeing the earth from a satellite. 
It's like, that's the only way, I, you know, if you've, if before people went into space, that view had never been seen. Mm -hmm. I, so, I, I want to make sure Angel gets to respond because Angel, you have to I, go sorry, pretty, no, no, no problem. Angel, you have to go pretty soon. But before that, I want to do a quick response as well. Just a personal statement over here regarding this amazing conversation. I definitely appreciate Curtis, Angel, you guys being here. This is an, an amazing conversation. We are going to go to Super Chats right after uh, Angel. And the only other thing that I wanted to say is I do find that there is a bit of seduction where, especially like a lot of people on uh, 4chan, for instance, and in other places where it almost feels like because of the marvelization of society when it comes to how certain events are portrayed, people tend to get too seduced into going completely the other way and assuming that anything at all that's been marvelized, this is automatically the wrong way to look at it, so I'm going to go for the other for the other side. And I'm that, I think, for, is very I'm shallow. For the villain. And I'm going to root for the yes. villain. And if you do that, exactly. you have not escaped from the frame. Exactly. Uh, Angel, please. Mm. <laughs> I think it's, it's unfair to... to, to put this on marvel because people have been doing what you're talking about <laughs> since long before that indeed and i, uh, I did not mean to put it, marvel you're i great. mean it's just called you. propaganda it's just called you know my side bias or whatever uh and that's that's what that is and you know people like their narratives and they like their narratives really clear cut when it comes to um you know their ideological positions or their historical positions um and i think you know i Obviously, taking a, a broad view of history and how it's worked is important. I think it's just as important to take a broad view of human nature and how it has worked and how it does work. And my my contention is that human nature is such that something like that simply would not work for very long without immense amounts of bloodshed. Uh, and by this, I mean, you know, some kind of monarchical system i just think especially now now that people you know if you tried to implement this tomorrow it would be a shit show right uh because people already know what it's like to not be like that and then you know i mean we've talked about third Reich, we've talked about stuff we've talked about all these places north korea that's another place where it seems to be basically operating like what is being proposed here uh and i definitely would not like to live there and most most people who live there probably would not like to live there. And they're terrified of even having that thought because the of how terrible it is to live there. So the there's ideology that, you know. of North Korea is is Juche, which is essentially an ideology of absolute war against the outside world, which is basically perceived yeah. as trying to destroy basically the entire society and way of life of North Korea. And the problem is that the outside world is, in fact, at war with North Korea and is in fact, uh, you know, unanimous in wanting to bring it down. And right. so the sort of the unity. Well, why? Of this, why is that? The, the unity. Of, to, exactly. Exactly. Why. And you can ask because... why. That's exactly my point. The is systematic aggression of people. You can, uh, you can ask why on both sides. Situation. You can yeah. ask why on both sides. Mm -hmm. And so you can basically you can. say, I'm you can basically say you'll, you'll this pattern end up on one side this pattern of spreading world revolution if you look at all the people that were killed in all the revolutions in the 20th century that have been promoted by anglo-american liberals you're actually in nine figures 
and sure. well, I, you're that, solidly that in nine case, figures. And so to, so to say that basically by being the, the progressive side that has been promoting every revolution in the century from the Russian Revolution to the Cuban Revolution to, in fact, of course, North Korea is an, is an outgrowth of the same Russian Revolution. And so, you know, for progressives to go and hang North Korea on the monarchists is really quite something. Now, you know, North Korea before, you know, if, if you look at basically the opposite of this policy of world revolution, you might look at, say, Japan, which is very similar to North Korea. Both were sealed countries until the West basically started to revolutionize first by first by opening them up to trade. If Tokugawa Japan still existed and had not been sort of westernized without its consent. OK, in a way, you can imagine the surviving Tokugawa you know, regime is sort of it's like a hermit kingdom. Like, in fact, hmm. Korea was also called the hermit well, kingdom. We, we, you can you can be horrified by it. You can be horrified by it. We got to go to Super Chats real quick. We got to go to Super Chats uh, <laughs> immediately because I know that, Angel, you have to go real soon. But, yeah. Curtis, since you mentioned Japan, there was one final thing that I wanted to say regarding Japan super fast, mm. and it is this. There was a recent uh, piece of news out from Japan Twitter that apparently the notifications, the, uh, what do you call it, like the stuff that you see on Twitter on a regular basis, like the most popular news items, all of those started to change quite recently with Elon Musk firing uh, so many of the Twitter staff because apparently they were going into Japanese Twitter and putting in special uh, news items having to do with, uh, you know, LGBT stuff and uh, woke <laughs> things. And all of a sudden now the Japanese are like, what's going on in my news feed? Now it's talking about like the stuff that I'm interested in, you know, like uh, anime and uh, like these TV shows that I like to watch and idols. And uh, so apparently... Apparently, there is something that can be done, like with Elon Musk, for example, you know, free market, yeah. you know, that now uh, enables there to I believe be. You're, I, I believe yeah. you're talking about a monarchy there. Um, but, uh, but that's not a government. But that's not a government. I, I, no, though. That's, no, that's, no. But uh, but but actually, many of the effects are seen. Uh, the same effects are seen at both layers. Angel, you got to go. Any any like last words? I don't want to. Well, no, you still have 10 minutes, which is why we're going to do the super chats right now. Okay. Here we go. Now go for it. All right, so we have um, oh, Mellow Elephant, 20 pa pounds. <laughs> As a Manx man, my idea of a liberal is Sir Thomas Henry Hall Kane. Does Mr. Yarman admire this writer? Um, I do not know Sir Tam Thomas Henry Hall Kane, so I would love to hear a precise, but I'm afraid our, leader, our reader would have to, to pay more. Can you, re can you spell the name out for us? Uh, it's uh, to well, Thomas Henry H A L L C A I N E. Never heard of this fellow. That's amazing. All right, well, I got I got to get this guy on BTR. Edge Monero two seventy ten dollars. If everyone from Jefferson to Marx and now Ben Burgess are liberals, then where does the Nazi regime come from? Are we to understand that they were within the liberal tradition as well? <laughs> I would say that they're a rebellion against the liberal tradition. I would say that they were doing exactly the thing you talked about earlier and where they basically decided to root for the villain in the Marvel movie. So one of the really interesting facts and ugly facts about uh, 20th century history is that if you look at World War One, there's this interesting trope of false allied war propaganda in the Anglo-American allied media where Germany is accused of being like the Hun. And, you know, the official reason for, you know, going to war is to stop the Hun from raping your sister or something like that. I, in fact, the actual 
diplomacy is, I, I believe, a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, but, um, you know, there was aggression, perhaps. And, um, um, you know, uh, innocent Belgium. You know, and, and in any case, the, um, you had this false atrocity war propaganda of the Hun. And maybe there were a little bit of tendencies and like that. That's the Fritz Fischer historical thesis. But, you know, it's really stretching it to compare those motherfuckers to the Nazis. Right. And, you know, the and one thing that's curious is that in the Second World War, the Germans inhabit this propaganda. They become the Hun. Now, it's on them, of course. It's not on the propaganda, but you can't help but notice that they're sort of doing exactly the same thing where the teacher says to them, you have to be liberals, and they're like, I hate this liberal stuff. What else can I, I be? And the teacher is like, well, if you're not a liberal, you're a Nazi. You're a Hun. And so they became Huns. So in a way, you know... Like, like the 4chan the, crowd, you could say, similar. Exactly. And the thing is, you know, most 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 of the strength of the Third Reich comes from old Wilhelmine Germany. Like, most Nazis are not anything like 4chan Nazis. But if you really look into Hitler, actually, Hitler is a lot like a 4chan Nazi. And people just don't get that. He's like, a, he's a total weirdo, you know? And, That's why they love him is, so much. Yeah. He is, exactly. He is a lot like a 4chan Nazi. And and most of the Nazis are not, but he is. And, you know, by the way, sorry, 4chan Nazis. There's absolutely no question but that the Holocaust happened and Hitler ordered it. Uh, almost all conspiracy theories about World War II are true, except for that one. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> the, uh, that's a trap. Stay out of the trap, man. All right. More, more super jets. <laughs> All right, here we go. Yeah, and I definitely think that Operation High Jump, uh, that's real too. Look into it. Anyway, Arthur Davidson, $10. Can the cathedral survive domestically in a deglobalized world? Now, I want to make sure, Angel, do you know what he means by cathedral? I do not. All right, Curtis. All right. Uh, I would just say, you know, the sort of media university complex, which basically seems to have the same opinion everywhere you look. And it's structurally decentralized. It has a number of centers, but you find that Harvard always agrees with Yale, always agrees with Princeton, always agrees with the New York Times. Mm. And so there's some mysterious force holding it together. It's not the international Jewish conspiracy. You know, it's not centralized at all in any way, shape, oh. or form, but it's a thing. It's right. So, people, obviously, it's lizard people. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We can. Finally, you said it. I didn't YouTube, you know, <laughs> I throw <laughs> I throw my information to the winds, you know, and, and, or, uh, and so so vampires, international psychic vampires. Right. And and so the question that's an interesting question, because the answer should be no, but I'm afraid it's yes. The answer should be no, because it's actually really extremely straightforward for the enemies of the U.S. to use soft power against us. The problem is they suck at it. Uh, as you recall, there was an election where I believe Russia bought $100,000 worth of Facebook ads. I was talking to a Facebook employee, and he explained that it was actually 50000 for some reason, not 100000 for some technical reason that I totally didn't understand. You know, the New York Times had this great article about Russian influence in which they breathlessly cited that there was some Twitter account that they suspected was Russian, and it got like 53 likes or something like that on one of its, like, you know, posts. I mean, it was just, you know, and, and you know, they suck at it. And so, you know, basically in a multipolar world with countries that were capable of competing with the U.S., you know, in propaganda, I'm not going to give anyone a shout out. Right. But, you know, like all these the reason they suck at it is remember, you know, of course, Russia sucks. Right. You know, and in particular, the Russian foreign ministry sucks. 
and they suck at what they do. And frankly, the Chinese foreign ministry is even worse. And so these are all these are Sovoks, right? Did mm. I say that right? You know, and and so they have like Soviet mentality. They still think they have like ties with leftists in some way, and they certainly don't know how to do international rightism in any sense. Nobody's but they, ever. But they known still how to try. Do that. Like they, they not support, even possible. They do support both uh, the left and the right, and I think that they definitely do influence. Like I've seen certain podcasters out there who are repeating their talking points. So they definitely do influence to a the certain question, degree. my friend, is how much better they could get at it. And if the if the level of better that you can get at something is measured in at least one order of magnitude and probably more like three to five, then by definition, my friend, you suck at it. And they, they don't they it. don't need a lot, though, because most Americans, let's face it, don't know shit about Russia. I know. That's... They suck at it. No, no, no. If, if they were actually to use the State Department's techniques against America with their resources against a country which is already in this humiliating prostrate position of running a trade deficit. You know, China could sell a trillion dollars in bonds tomorrow and basically use it to do what the State Department does mm. to China. And man, would it work? Oh, well, they, so, they you know, could certainly the, do more. But, so, but let's, let's so, go on. So, the, so yeah. yeah. So, so there's a weakness there. And so, it, yeah. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Oh, Angel. And also 643. I want to make sure how much time do you have? Because you said you have a hard out. Yeah, at... I do have to. I do have to jump because I have a. OK, before I get to the rest of the Super Chats uh, and Curtis, are you OK with uh, staying just for a bit for the uh, rest sure. of the Super Chats? OK. OK. Angel, where can people find you? Uh, angeleduardo.com is my website and I'm on Twitter at strangeledweird. I don't know if the name shows up here. It, it does, yes. Uh, that's where you can find me mostly. And I have um, the links in the description as well so everybody please support Angel, support what you're doing and uh, yeah, let us know anything else that's coming up or any final words that you want to say. Uh, no, thanks for the very interesting combo. Uh, it was great to be here, man. Thanks again for inviting thanks me. So much, Angel. Great to meet you, Curtis. Real Take pleasure. care. Great to, great right. to have you. So uh, let us move on to the uh, next Super Chat over here. And the window is going to change. It's going to look a little bit weird. That's okay. I'm mm -hmm. going to change it in a bit. Let me just add one more uh, StreamYard window in here so it'll work. And once again, for all the people who are watching right now, if you want to support Break the Rules, which I know you do, be sure to knock your fingers as strongly as possible on that subscribe button right now and be sure to go to patreon.com slash break the rules become a patron and uh, curtis i don't know if you know this but my father alexander he is really good when it comes to woodworking i'll send you some of his mm. stuff later oh, but uh, i'm just gonna put it on the screen right now for the people to uh for the good people to see it these are magnets that you can get if you become a twenty dollar tier subscriber maple mahogany ashwood cherry uh, my father, beautiful person and beautiful artist. He's the person who taught me how to draw as well. And he is going to make these magnets for you. These are going to be random magnets. But if you want to get something even more special, $50 tier patronage is going to give you a magnificent magnet that is custom made. So whatever design you want within, within reason, it's going to be done. I guarantee it. So anyway, uh, enough about the uh, shilling. I want to get back to the super chats over here. So here we go. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, glow in the dark. Nice name. Five five dollars. The only true international law is law that is dictated by those that have the power to enforce it or the hegemon decides. 
I guess that wasn't a question. It was just a comment. But uh, no. Yeah. So so I would I would call I would call what we have now basically transnational law. It's the law of of an empire. And one of the things that all scholars of the previous international law, which is essentially the natural law of nations, would agree on, is that the most fundamental right of a state is to make war. And once a state no longer has the right to make war, it is no longer a sovereign state. And obviously, that is in direct conflict with the with the principles of this international law. So when you look at, but there is still a sense in which we can describe the real international law, which is not a transnational law, which is that we can call it the natural law of nations. And the idea of natural law came from this was a time when you know early. Um, Enlightenment scholars were really reconsidering the nature of relations between man and man in a very fundamental way. And so they would ask themselves, well, we have all this legislation, we have all these rules, but suppose a bunch of castaways are cast ashore on a desert island and they haven't consented to anything, they haven't agreed to any rules. Like what principles should they follow? Can we describe, for example, can we say that anyone of good faith will respect the idea of property or will consider murder to be wrong? And the answer is yes, we can respect that. So even even if there's no power over these individuals, there is still a natural law. And so, so to extend that sort of idea of right and wrong to the law of nations is to say what behaviors are inherently considered right and right and wrong in the way that nations relate to each other and certainly going to war either as a preemptive measure of self-defense or to redeem a grievance is you know essentially treated as a kind of of lawsuit in the true international law so louis the 14th had for example carved on his cannons or stamped on his cannons the words uh, ultima ratio regum meaning the last argument of kings and that was the sort of the traditional meaning of war this concept of an aggressor was is an entirely it's a false concept as far as i'm aware it does not appear in any of these works and so you know there is your comment is right, but there actually is a whole world outside of this scornful Mr. Glow in the Dark, uh, you know, name <laughs> you give. Um, I, I feel like you should have a minimum, uh, Lev. Do you, do you have a minimum super chat price? Oh, that is a beautiful that is a beautiful idea. But you know what? All of these have been pretty good so far. Like fifteen, twenty. The bucks are raking in, Curtis. So, all right, all right, uh, keep rolling. I love good. your fundraising method too. It's so much classier <laughs> than, than like penis pills or uh, pain pills. What does Alex Jones sell? You know. Oh, those like are that. coming. Those are coming. Okay, okay, okay. 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 So but, uh, yours actually work. Yours actually work. Secret Russian formula. Your father developed them in Soviet lab. Yeah, sure. Yes, sure. here we go. Daniel Davidson, $15. Curtis, what are your thoughts on Oswald's, Oswald Spengler's decline of the West? Ooh, how has um, it influenced your philosophy? Say, I would yeah. say that it's a very long and beautiful book, which I read a long time ago. I think you will get uh, do much better with his, much, his later and shorter book, uh, Hour of Decision. If you like Hour of Decision, you should probably tackle Decline of the West. All right, next super chat. NGS uh, is NOK. I think that's Norway. Uh, $55, which is not as impressive as it's not as impressive as it sounds. 
But okay, it does sound pretty impressive, though. To Curtis Yarvin, what are your thoughts uh, about Schmidt, concept of the political, and his thinking on sovereignty? See, like, all these Super Chats, they're all coming from the same place, though. That's that's what Break the Rules, mm. by the way, is trying to address. You know, you know what I'm talking about, mm. right? Like, it's all about Spangler and Schmidt and all these all these guys. But anyway. Go, go and all the, all the, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, I, you know, Schmidt is, I, you know, I was just in a, you know, kind of Stanford-affiliated seminar about Schmidt. Uh, you know, Schmidt is a great thinker. A, you know, he's um, like uh, one of the great juristic philosophers of the 20th century. Go and read his Stanford Encyclopedia, you know, of uh, philosophy article. And, you know, it will be clear that you're not talking about Julius Stryker. Um, yeah, you know, Schmidt is one of the greats. And yes, was he affiliated with the Nazi party for a while? Yes, so is Heidegger. Heidegger was really more of a Nazi, actually. Heidegger was really, really got into like the Nazi blood and soil stuff. But, mm. you know, sure. I mean, many of many of my favorite intellectuals have been like communist or even woke. I mean, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Oh, here we go. And by the way, we are going to be doing a stream with uh, Alexander Bard uh, soon uh, about uh, Camille Paglia. That that should be a very interesting one coming up. So uh, Riggs, 10 pounds, no uh, comment. Thank you very much, Riggs. And Nicholas Dollinger, well, okay, 199. It's, no, 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 I'm going to skip that one. No, I'm going to be polite. All right, here we go. Riggs, 10 pounds. Moldbug, what is the most important step to take after a successful coup? Um, what is the most important? I, I would say what is the most, uh, you know, important and frequently overlooked um, step? And, you know, the obvious answer is to put your hands firmly on the levels of um, security and take direct executive command of the police. But I think it's also very important to get your hands on the levers of financial power. There we go. Well, if there's only one last thing that I want to say about this uh, wonderful conversation, Curtis, I definitely appreciate you being here, and I hope that this is the pleasure. I hope this is the first of many to come. Indeed, we may we left many uh, many threads. We could uh, we we will we will you know we can tie off at some point. Uh, You can find um, my Substack at graymuir.substack.com. That's gray with an A, the American way. And I really appreciate being on the show. Thank you very much, Curtis. Take care, everybody. Be sure to smash that like button, smash that subscribe button, click the bell. The bell is extremely important for the algorithm. And uh, that's it, patreon.com slash break the rules. And we are also streaming this on all the streaming platforms on Twitch. We are streaming this, I believe, on Rumble as well and uh, on Odyssey all over the place. So Break the Rules, bringing everybody together from all these different circles online. This is what Break the Rules does best. Curtis, thank you, 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 does best.